0: Leading saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with Managing Domestic Duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. To begin, I'd like to thank our listeners for what is today a run of 100 episodes.
1: 100? Yes.
0: And... uh, a little celebration music? Uh.
1: Christmas and an anniversary.
0: Yes, a, a double celebration. And I've uh, even arranged for a uh, holiday gift exchange with our listeners.
1: You didn't tell me about this.
0: I uh, just thought of it.
1: Like a secret Santa? How could we draw names?
0: Oh, we can't. But we do have bone-and-sickle gifts. Uh, not only the mug and the... Uh, 2022 gothic skeleton shirt, but we're also printing more of the original shirt. With
1: the skeleton holding the sickle?
0: Yes, short sleeve, long sleeve, hoodies, and it's not been available for a couple of years now.
1: That's nice, but how does it work, the gift exchange?
0: They send money, we send the shirt. Even with Secret Santa, you try to keep the exchange to gifts of similar value. This way, it's all streamlined.
1: It's not really a Secret Santa.
0: Just search Bone and Sickle on Shopify or go to our website and you can find the link There's there.
1: There's no surprise if you're just going to buy it. Well, th-
0: that's why it works. You get exactly what's in the picture online. Well... Oh, well, we do have the party music and we have cake.
1: Oh, Lord. The cake. Christmas cake. It's not only just leftovers, but it's... Ugh. It's actually a work of art and... Only
0: a day old. It certainly wasn't cheap.
1: It's the hair. Cakes shouldn't have hair.
0: What uh, Mrs. Carswell is trying to describe is a life-like Santa Claus or Father Christmas cake. It's an edible, almost life-size bust.
1: With long, flowing white beard and
0: hair. Edible hair, that's right. And I'm proud to say that was my idea. I didn't make the whole thing myself. I did hire a cake artist, but in... Uh, discussing the beard, I did offer a suggestion, which turned out
1: to work quite well. If you wanted to make it realistic, it's it's a good job. M- maybe too much. People don't want to eat a human head, especially at Christmas.
0: It's a sort of hand-pulled cotton candy, the hair. Uh, the Chinese call it dragon beard, and they use it in a candy with that name.
1: And you cut off
0: the nose. Oh, once I got the call about the party, I decided I was free to have a taste of it. Uh, This cake we're talking about, which I wish you could see, um, was something I made for a holiday party that uh, ended up being canceled.
1: I don't think I've ever seen you that happy.
0: About the Donnelly house party? it's It's just tiresome every year, and I have issues with the woman they hire as a harpist. She's quite... Presumptuous, I guess.
1: I know you just hate going out. I thought you were going to start singing when you caught off oh, the phone.
0: I was relieved, but I wasn't about to celebrate. You know, they canceled it because Mr. Donnelly had a stroke in the bath that morning.
1: I had no idea you got bad news like that.
0: Bad news, but with a silver lining, at least. He's fine. I don't know about walking, but he's already moving his eyes. Little twitches, I'm told.
1: I'm not sure how much of a silver lining that no, I, is.
0: I know I'm mean that the party was canceled.
1: That all just makes the cake more ghastly. Knowing that, and with those staring eyes. And no nose.
0: I bet you didn't know those eyes are peeled lychees. That's what gives them the wet look. Oh. Well, I can see you don't want to have any cake at the moment, but uh, maybe after we record?
1: Let's just record.
0: Well, then, uh, this is episode 100 Christmas Devils and the Feast of Fools. I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, which I might add makes an excellent holiday gift, perhaps paired with the new Bone and Sickle shirt. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including those short bonus episodes you keep hearing about. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. than adequately dramatic, a bit cliched, perhaps. The piece is one I'm sure you've heard in any number of Hollywood productions, wherever they want to goose up the drama a bit. It's even used at uh, one point in a German Old Spice commercial. Old Spice, the night of the men. And it traveled a long way to get there, all the way from the Middle Ages, or at least it could be said for the lyric. Oh, Fortuna, named for the... Uh, Roman goddess of luck and fate is one of 24 11th century poems set to music by the German composer Karl Orff in 1935. Sometimes this single piece from Orff's cantata is uh, incorrectly referred to by the name of the entire cantata, uh, Carmina Burana, which is also the name of the uh, medieval verse collection. Now, what uh, any of this has to do with Christmas devils or the Feast of Fools will become clear shortly as we explore a connection with the early St. Nicholas plays. We are in the neighborhood of St. Nicholas, after all, or it is a December 6th Feast Day. And uh, those who've been listening to the show for a while, or those who've read my book, know that the uh, Alpine St. Nicholas plays were a primary influence on creating the figure of uh, Nicholas's dark companion. The Krampus. We're not going to be discussing the Krampus exactly, but we will be talking about some broader cultural forces that shaped those Nicholas plays. And the materialist episode is largely adapted from my Krampus book and the chapter "The Church Breeds a Monster." Before we get to all that, however, one more note on the Carmina Burana. Despite the weighty musical setting, or provided O Fortuna. You might be surprised to learn that many of the poems in the collection were pointedly frivolous, snarky, and rude. While their author is unknown, they're considered uh, goliard works, or the work of a goliard, uh, that is a name for uh, young monastery dropouts who wandered the country, minstrel style, earning their food and lodgings with humorous or bawdy songs, which specifically parodied the language and customs of the church. Here's a bit of what I'm talking about from the Carmina Burana, one that references Decius, the Roman god of dice and gambling. The story in the poem begins with a bunch of corrupt ecclesiastics at a gambling table. A pious man of God who's taken a vow of poverty arrives at the door. eager to join them, and he gets a rude response.
1: Friend, you and your poverty can go to hell. Get thou behind me, Satan, because you do not smell of money. They threw him out, and he went off weeping bitterly and inconsolably. Later on, a certain rich cleric came to the courier. He was gross and fat and swollen and had committed treacherous murder. He bribed the first doorkeeper, then the chamberlain, then the cardinals, but they put their heads together and demanded more. However, the Lord Pope heard that his cardinals and ministers had been lavishly bribed by the cleric, and he was sick even to death. So the rich man sent him medicine in the form of gold and silver, and straight away he was healed.
0: Then there's one called the Drinker's Mass, replacing the Lord's name with that of the Roman god of drink. Uh, Catholics will recognize its inversion of the uh, mea culpa.
1: I confess to the all-drinking culprit Bacchus, and the accursed red wine, and to all his dishes, and to you, drinkers, that I have drunk most excessively, gluttonously, through great sickness of the culprit, Bacchus, my god, with snorting with greatest speed, through my vat, through my most grievous vat. Therefore, I pray most blessed Bacchus and all his dishes that you, brother drinkers, that you will drink for me to the Lord Culprit Bacchus, so that he will pity me. May cup-powerful Bacchus have mercy on you and permit you to lose all your clothes and lead you to the great tavern, he who drinks and gulps through all the cups of cups.
0: And speaking of blasphemy... We'll now examine how the devil assumed a starring role in medieval plays presented on Saint Nicholas Day and Christmas. Nicholas was a particularly popular saint in the Middle Ages, making him an ever-present figure on stages throughout the Advent season, that is, the month of December. But the saint's prominence was closely rivaled by appearances by Lucifer and his devils. Even in those biblical stories presented on the stage or in saintly legends where no devils were traditionally featured, demons and Lucifer would somehow pop up as a source of dramatic conflict or actually, more often perhaps, comic relief. And this is how we get to the Carmina Burana. One of the poems, a more serious one, the collection's actually all over the map in terms of tone. Um, One of these treats the theme of the nativity and it was used as the text of the Benedict Boyern Christmas play from 13th century Bavaria, which is uh, probably the oldest and uh, certainly most discussed German Christmas play and important in the big picture as Germany was Europe's home of the Christmas play. It was this Benedictine monastery in the town of Boyern that preserved the Carmina Burana's collection of verse and gave it its name. Uh, Burana is a Latinized version of Boyan, so songs from Boyan is what it would be called in English. Now, the Benedict Boyan Christmas play, you'll be glad to know, gratuitously inserts a number of diabolical scenes, including not only a depiction of devils dragging King Herod off to Hell after he initiates the massacre of the innocents, but also a ranting appearance by the Antichrist, as well as the intrusion of Lucifer into the pastoral scenes with the shepherds, who are part of the Nativity story, being mocked by Satan for what he regards as their naive belief in the uh, angels' good tidings. Another diabolical drama once probably performed during the Advent season is the Bavarian play of Antichrist, Ludus de Antichristo, discovered in a monastery near the lake town of Tegnersee. And there's the Hessian Christmas play, probably composed in the mid-1400s in the vicinity of Friedberg, Germany, which presents a particularly obscene Lucifer plotting to prevent the birth of Christ with his demons, whom he promises to reward with little scatological trifles including
1: Bayberries of sheep, goat beans, and the stuff an old nun left in the privy prior to singing matins.
0: Oh, dear. Wherever Lucifer might be omitted from a Christmas play, King Herod often stood in as a sort of earthly counterpart or antichrist of sorts. For those unfamiliar with the biblical story, the three magi following a start of Bethlehem where the birth of a king has been foretold naively share this prophecy with the king, who, fearing a usurper, orders all the male children to another to be slaughtered, the incidents referred to as the Massacre of the Innocents. This scene provided a wealth of drama and pathos to the authors of mystery plays, including the unknown author of one produced in Coventry in England's West Midlands from the 14th century onward. The verse from the script has been set to music and is known today as the Coventry Carol. You'll still hear it in certain classically-minded carol collections, but the lyrics don't uh, exactly endear it to the uh, Jingle Bells set.
1: Herod the king in his raging, charged he hath this day, his men of might in his own sight, all young children to slay.
0: And you're uh, hearing a bit of the Coventry Carol just now. Medieval thespians were known to take a particular delight in portraying King Herod's anger and confusion and cruelty. His uh, scenery-chewing fits became such a fixture in European minds that even in Shakespeare's era, it's referenced in Hamlet's warning to uh, overzealous thespians not to
1: Out, Herod, Herod.
0: Far from the sentimental nativity scenes most remember today, this fascination with Herod's slaughter is one of the darker elements of the old dark Christmas I write about in my book. Theatrical representations of these atrocities were not only popular with medieval audiences, but often enthusiastically ghastly in their detail surviving dialogue or stage directions from these plays implies that soldiers might sometimes
1: proudly display their lances and swords laden with spitted corpses.
0: While other plays have the butchers sardonically guessing their infant victims’ ages based on weight. Medieval scholar Wolfgang Golter further suggested that soldiers in German plays punctured blood-filled wooden dolls using these performances. And an early 15th century German Christmas play from Erlau even makes of the slaughter a sort of ghoulish farce. The script gives Herod a court jester, Lappa, who joins in with the soldiers in joyfully murdering the infants, giddily promising to dye his hands in the spilled blood, and to slaughter as many children as possible, even if there are...
1: A hundred thousand of them.
0: The Benedict Boy on Christmas Play rewards the Wicked King's deeds with an equally grisly end, as stage directions dictate,
1: Let Herod be gnawed to pieces by words, and leaving his throne a dead man, let him be received by the devils, with much rejoicing among them.
0: How the grisly business with the worms might have been staged does remain a rather intriguing mystery. Herod's appearance in these ecclesiastic productions could also involve a certain amount of theatrical roughhousing. From the Italian town of Padua, under the leadership and cultural influence of German bishops through much of the Middle Ages, we find particularly theatrical instructions in a 13th century liturgy for the Mass of the Innocents. On that day, the Gospel reader is to be costumed as Herod and equipped with a wooden spear After angrily reading the story of his own crimes, he is instructed to hurl his spear into the choir, where the choir sits, not into a singer. More performers posing as Herod's soldiers are then sent to attack those conducting the service and then to proceed out into the nave to harass the congregation. Their weapons are inflated animal bladders, the uh, medieval equivalent of a balloon that became a traditional uh, carnival toy for smacking people around you. While this interest in Herod was particularly strong in German-speaking lands, the appeal of Satan, his devils, and his infernal realm was universal throughout Europe during the period. For the greater part of the audience who did not understand the Latin dialogue, the visual appeal, the fanciful costumes and effects was all important, sort of like today's Marvel movies. As theatrical pageants became more elaborate and practical staging concerns forced them outside the church's confines. One feature that became almost mandatory was the hell mouth. This uh, portal to the underworld was usually represented by a gaping bestial maw large enough to accommodate the exit of demons and the entrance of sinners. If it were large and well positioned enough for audiences to observe actions within the Hellmouth might even contain a few players costumed as chained sinners and devils armed with instruments of torture. While the setting for heaven might be rather sparsely defined, little expense was spared in pleasing the crowd with an elaborate entrance to Satan's realm. Smoke and belching fire was a regular feature of the Hellmouth the jaws themselves might also be engineered to move, as is the case from a 1437 passion play in Metz, Germany, for which the hellmouth was praised as,
1: Very well made, for by a device it opened and closed of its own accord, when the devils wanted to go in or come out of it. And this great head and two great steel eyes, which glittered wonderfully,
0: a hellish din might also accompany the opening of the mouth, as in the case of this 1474 play from Rouen, France, in which...
1: All the devils cry out together with their drums and other thunderings made by machines, and the cannon are shot far, and flames of fire are thrown out from nostrils, the eyes, and the ears.
0: Demons who flitted in and out of the hell mouth wore masks, which also figured into the production's cost... A 1433 document from a play in York, England, shows, curiously, twice the number of devil masks compared to the coats, or costumes, suggesting that performers portraying devils either sported both backward and forward-facing masks, or, as scholar Clifford Davidson and Nona Mason believe,
1: the second attached presumably in a not-quite-respectable location.
0: something you'd recognize from paintings and uh, stained glass depictions from that era. As for the costumes, leather would be suggested by those uh, sponsoring the devil costumes, the Tanner's Guilds. Leather seems to be uh, mentioned in the description of the devil in Hildegard von Bingen's Ordo Virtutum, uh, the Order of the Virtues, in which the uh, devil's appearance is likened to...
1: A reddish-brown, leathery-skinned beast... Which is similar to a dragon.
0: As a fallen angel, Lucifer might also be costumed in feathers, often charred or worse for wear from his fall from heaven. In the uh, mystery play from Chester, England, for instance, the script calls for
1: the devil in his feathers, all ragged and rent.
0: In a 1453 play from Lucerne, Switzerland, uh, Satan even appears in a Garden of Eden temptation scene as a four-legged serpent walking on his hind legs up until the point when he is cursed by God and then the actor is directed to make his exit crawling on all fours. Another play from Breton explains this uh, four-legged serpent anomaly as a species wiped out by the fall. Responsible for all these stage effects for the simulated floods accompanying stories of Noah's Ark, the wire-flying angels, devils, saints, blood effects with the grisly simulated martyrdoms, and pretty much any stage effect, was someone known as the
1: Master of Secrets.
0: Often these uh, medieval special effects wizards were recruited from distant cities for the job, and his craft was held in high esteem, as suggested by this 1547 description of a Whitsuntide play, boasting that
1: The contrivances of the paradise and of hell were absolutely prodigious and could be taken by the populace for magic.
0: In a later allegorical drama, the 15th century Castle of Perseverance, the chief demon and god's opponent, named Belial in this production, is required to
1: have gunpowder burning in pipes in his hands and in his ears and in his arse when he goeth to battle.
0: In a 1536 pageant, Mystery of the Holy Acts of the Apostles, presented in Bourges, France, the devil appears in.
1: A hell, 14 feet long by 18 feet broad, in a fashion of a rock crowned with a tower, ever burning and belching flames, wherein Lucifer's head and body alone appeared, vomiting flames of fire unceasingly, and holding in his hands certain kinds of serpents or vipers which writhed and belched fire.
0: Masks might also be equipped with similar effects, as in the late 15th, early 16th century director's notebook from Provençal. Which uh, offers complete with withdrawings...
1: Instructions for making a devil mask that will blow fire.
0: Which ends up being a, a trick involving a hollow cavity, such as a beak or snout, filled with insulating mud, and large enough to contain...
1: Two or three coals.
0: live coals uh, to be used as ignition for powdered sulfur and alcohol blown by the performer through 30 or 40 goose quills, so that...
1: Flames come all blue... Out of the lips of the devil's mask.
0: Something for your next party, perhaps? That uh, all of these hellish theatrics were particularly associated with the Christmas season. It may seem a bit jarring today, but just as much as the three magi, angels, and shepherds are today, King Herod, the Antichrist, and devil were all an integral part of the old holiday in Europe. From Saint Nicholas Day through the New Year and Epiphany, audiences looked forward to encountering devils in dramatic biblical stories ranging from Lucifer's fall at the creation to the appearance of Antichrist at the end of time. The devil appeared as a tempter or punisher in any number of saintly legends produced theatrically and later in more worldly stories of the everyman faced with more common moral challenges. Beyond the Nicholas plays, there is another tradition associated with St. Nicholas that fed a subversive, sometimes violent undercurrent in holiday celebrations, namely that of the boy bishop. Beginning around the 10th century, the title was given to a youth chosen from the choristers or the students of the cathedral school who was elected to lead Mass either on the feast day of St. Nicholas, because of Nicholas's patronage of children, or on December 28th, the Feast of the Holy Innocents, a day honoring not only the young martyrs, but children in general. The tradition was found throughout Catholic nations and later even in some Protestant regions. Despite the tradition being discouraged or forbidden in past centuries, its potential to generate unruliness, which we'll discuss in a moment, it resurfaced in the modern age, as in this 1935 newsreel documenting the temporary enthronement of a boy bishop in a church in Compton in England's southeast.
1: School, Higget, arrive for the ceremony of enthroning the boy bishop,
0: a custom which dates back over 500 years. A medieval ceremony
1: revived in a modern parish church of Surrey.:
0: The novelty of a diminutive bishop outfitted with a tiny mantle, mitre and crook. Assisted usually by his equally diminutive schoolboy chaplains, drew uh, huge crowds to the cathedrals. Sometimes the mass could get quite elaborate. In uh, Toledo, Spain, for instance, the young bishop was invested with his miters by angels standing on a suspended cloud, lowered in for the occasion. Other unruly elements of the boy bishop services are reported by King Conrad of Germany in 911. Writing about his visit to the Abbey of St. Gall near Lake Constance, Switzerland, he describes a boy abbot whose title had to be defended via a foot race conducted in the church during the services. Upon a queue the young rivals were to race from the church door and attempt to catch the appointed abbot. If they succeeded the youngster was to forfeit four servings of wine to his captors and could not remain at the altar. If the young abbot evaded his captors, he received an honorary seat during the mass from which he was allowed to throw uh, pears, apples, pancakes, or water at his rivals. Conrad also reports that within the school itself, boys on the stay
1: were not bound by any law
0: and were accustomed to capturing their teachers or other visitors and holding them until an adequately large ransom was paid, which is... a probably related to the barring out customs, the banning of teachers from classrooms allowed on certain occasions in British schools of later centuries. Money and gifts were also usually demanded by the boy bishop and his retinue during a city-wide procession that followed the mass and ended with drunken feasts hosted by prominent members of the community. Sometimes these processions could degenerate into destructive sprees as evidenced by a letter written by Pope Innocent IV to the Bishop of Regensburg in Bavaria in 1249. In this communication, the Pope details the problem as has been reported to him by the abbot of nearby Prufening Abbey. The Pope concludes, repeating the abbot's accusations.
1: Every year, while playing at appointing a bishop for themselves, they indulge in masked shows and other mostly shameful games. Approaching the monastery each year with games of this kind and weapons in their hands, they break the doors and treat the monks and the servants of the monastery shamefully. Then they drive the horses and cattle from their stalls. These excesses are sometimes not accomplished without bloodshed.
0: More than a hundred years later, there were still cases that seemed to escalate into Lord of the Flies territory. A local chronicle from 1357 notes that,
1: A citizen of Regensburg killed a cleric of the cathedral church while he was riding with his bishop, namely the Bishop of Bois.
0: The city of Paris even saw the death of a boy bishop himself. In 1448, students parading along with the surrogate bishop were confronted and attacked by the city's night watch, wounding several of the revelers. The students retreated to the house of a former rector of the university, but were besieged with arrows and stones hurled by a catapult. Eventually, the watch battered their way into the home, where a battle ensued and the students were captured. The boy bishop himself was later found dead in the Seine, believed murdered. Another death associated with boy bishop celebrations occurred in Salisbury in 1448. On the way back from evening celebrations, an argument erupted among the students and a group of accompanying vicars, during which a retainer of the canon hosting the party was beaten to death with sticks. An investigation revealed that during the mass led by the boy bishop, participating vicars indulged in much
1: howling and profanity,
0: and that candles had been stolen and vestments and ornaments damaged. Chronicles of the Lauterberg Monastery near Saal, Germany also recorded a boy trampled to death during the boy bishop celebrations of 1137. While death and blood shedding mayhem were hardly typical of boy bishop customs, they became troublesome enough that the tradition was generally banned by the 18th century. In cases where boy bishop celebrations fell on Holy Innocence Day, December 28th, they became intermingled with the even more subversive celebration of the Feast of Fools. While it would be difficult to demonstrate any direct lineage between this medieval winter festival and the uh, Nicholas Krampus customs, the two phenomena have roots in the same cultural soil and the societal dynamic at work in the Feast of Fools, during which costumed bishops, devils, and animal-masked revelers charged noisily through the streets, feels uh, undeniably similar to the anarchic spirit of the Krampus, or actually the uh, older Kerstinlauf. In The Medieval Boy Bishops, author Neil Mackenzie neatly describes the Feast of Fools in its spirit as
1: part religious observance, part pantomime, part fancy dress party, part carnival, with some elements of a protest march and satirical show.
0: Those of you who know of the Feast of Fools will probably know it through its carnivalesque street parades and election of a mock king, bishop, or pope of fools. Though this secular side of the festivities is often emphasized the medieval celebration is actually firmly connected to liturgical traditions. The Feast of Fools, or Latin uh, Festum Fatuorum, is generally considered to have consisted of three or four individual feast days, all of them inverting ecclesiastic hierarchies. On December 26, the Feast of St. Stephen, the deacons traded positions with the priests over them. Priests were elevated over bishops on St. John's Day. Church school students or choristers were elevated as discussed on Holy Innocence Day and subdeacons on January 1st. Later in history January 1st was most often associated with the name Feast of Fools and some scholars prefer to restrict the definition to this day. But there is a looseness in regional vocabulary and traditions which makes us a bit questionable. It's probable, however, that this day represented an extreme in rough behavior and unruliness given that the subdeacons were the lowest adult members of the ecclesiastic castes, often illiterate and unlike the boy bishops and his chaplains, not subject to adult supervision. A looser understanding even extends the festival to include the January 14th Azenaria Festa or Feast of the Ass a celebration of the animal that carried the Holy Family into Egypt after Christ's birth. In certain locations, a live animal will be wrangled into the church and stationed at or near the altar. The beast's entry or exit would be accompanied by a processional with these words.
1: From the east the donkey came, pretty and strong, fit for burden. Hey, Sir Donkey, hey! Gold from Arabia, incense and myrrh from Saba. this gallant donkey brought to the church. Hey, Sir Donkey, hey. You say, Amen, donkey, all filled with grass. Amen, you repeat, spurning the past. Hey, Sir Donkey, hey.
0: And uh, that is what you're hearing now. Mackenzie, the uh, author quoted earlier, says it was sung,
1: with a genuflection at the end, apparently to the ass, and the mass finished with the priest dismissing the people and whinnying three times, to which the people responded with three whinnies.
0: Referencing a letter complaining about various reverencies sent by the Faculty of Theology in Paris, Mackenzie adds...
1: In all likelihood, the unreformed liturgies were more profane than these examples.
0: Something no doubt influenced by a rather notorious, though entertaining, diatribe written in 1445 against the excesses of lower clergy participating in the Festum Fatuorum, the Feast of fools Services, Uh, it reads as follows.
1: Priests and clerks may be seen wearing masks and monstrous visages at the hours of office. They dance in the choir dressed as women, panders, or minstrels. They sing wanton songs. They eat black puddings at the horn of the altar while the celebrant is saying mass. They play dice there. They sense with stinking smoke from the soles of old shoes. They run and leap through the church without a blush at their own shame. Finally, They drive about the town and its theatres in shabby traps and carts, and rouse the laughter of their fellows, and the bystanders in infamous performances with indecent gesture and verses scurrilous and unchaste.
0: It's been suggested there may have been an element of polemic exaggeration here, but other accounts tend to support the idea that the Feast of Fools, as celebrated both inside and outside the church could indeed reach extremes, shocking to highest sensibilities. In 1420, for instance, the town council of Basel was troubled enough by festivities to uh, draft a prohibition against
1: running as devils into churches or around town,
0: stipulating that this applies also to those dressed as goats. From Paris of 1421, we have a request from authorities that neither
1: the Bishop of Fools nor any other minister of the church attacked
0: and that no citizen should attempt to
1: take by force the bishop's standard or his other accoutrements
0: nor should the bishop himself enter the church
1: escorted by his turbulent cortege. In
0: 1645 in Antibes on the Côte d'Azur Lay brothers of the Franciscan Church are said to have conducted mass wearing vestments turned inside out, spouted gibberish from inverted liturgical books, blown ash from censers into one another's faces, and donned make-believe spectacles made of orange rinds. In the French town of Saus, the Archbishop was compelled in 1444 to forbid disorderly mobs, discordant scene mockery, and other irregularities beyond those outlined in the rubrics. The candidate appointed Lord of the Cloisters for this occasion, he added, was not to be drenched with more than three buckets of water during Vespers on the January 1st Feast of the Circumcision, and only one would be permitted on St. John's Eve. That church is so any more fun, isn't it? Um, One rationale the church offered for permitting these inversions was a lesson of humility taught by the nativity season through the birth of a mighty messiah, two lowly peasants in a humble stable. This was symbolically reinforced in the case of the boy bishop by staging the replacement of adult clergy with boys during the singing of the Magnificat, specifically during the line
1: he hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek.
0: Beyond this, however, it seems that these festivities, like the later Nicholas parades that evolved from the plays, represented a battleground between the church's efforts at theatrical pedagogy and the more mischievous worldly instincts of those participating. Instincts which at times seem to have defeated institutional control. Frustrated by failures to regulate the celebrations, the church finally banned the festival altogether during the 15th century, leaving much of the secular momentum developed to channel itself into early celebrations of carnival, or with Krampus in mind, that would be the Persian customs of the Alpine regions. What's
1: the matter? Are you deaf? She's deaf. The bells have made him so.
0: Death. Maybe he's dumb, too. That makes him the perfect king. Show him the crown.
1: By unanimous vote, we now proclaim you king of fools.
0: That would be Quasimodo, the hunchbacked bell ringer of Notre Dame. Charles Lawton here in the best talkie version released in 1939. Uh, This is probably the most famous literary reference to the Feast of Fools, one celebrated in Victor Hugo's novel on Epiphany, January 6, 1492. I could hardly end the show without mentioning it, and now that I have, that's what we'll do. I uh, hope this episode has provided some seasonal merriment, perhaps some fresh ideas for your next holiday party. Maybe you can crown yourself King of Fools or take inspiration from past seasons' episodes and wander the streets as a Krampus or Peerst or Belsnickel. In any case, I hope, however you celebrate, you're having a Merry Christmas, a Happy Yule or what have you. And now we'll let Quasimodo bring us out. hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. Rather than list off all the rewards that patrons can receive as I normally do, I'm going to read another review from another happy patron. No need to take my word for it. You can hear from our patron Tyler Lomanak, who says... Not only do I have regular episodes to enjoy, but I also have one of the most entertaining Patreon feeds imaginable. The feed features additional information and truly obscure media to round out the regular episodes. There are bonus episodes that are creepy and enthralling and include a musical number that is utterly unique. Mr. Reitner works to constantly engage his patrons and make the podcast experience something to look forward to throughout the month. Everything is so well researched, beautifully produced, and lushly atmospheric. I even had my fortune told by Mrs. Carswell's bees. Thank you Tyler. I hope someone might follow in your footsteps this episode. We uh, thanked quite a backlog of new patrons in the last show, but we do have a few new ones. Our heartfelt thanks goes out to Tanya Mercatorisa, L. Griffion, John Deere, Tina Lieberherr, Mark Stewart, and Micah Cavanaugh. thanks also to Grim Robes for the very kind review on Apple Podcasts. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Ridenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.